according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures once again this evening. We are, uh, tell you what, we're in the book of Acts, uh, continuing our survey. So uh, let's go to Acts uh, 17, and we can pick up with uh, the second missionary journey and uh, Thessalonica. Might back up a little bit to chapter 16, but only to try to reteach what sounded horrible last week. Acts chapter uh, 17. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask the Father to bless our time of study. Ask uh, for the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to lead us into the truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness and uh, how manifest it is in season and out of season. Father, I thank you for uh, the truth of your word and the the joy that it is for us to study. Father, uh, we're commanded to study. We're commanded to be diligent, to present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And uh, it's hard to imagine that's a command, Father, because it's just so fun to do. Thank you for letting us study. Thank you for letting us grow. Thank you for teaching us for providing each one of us with the Holy Spirit that we might know the things, even the deep things of God. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We do want to start with some questions, and uh, we had a couple by email. Let me pull those open. I started a brand new Q&A file, so it's fairly clean here. Um, Velma had a question. She was... uh, Someone that had a question last week from uh, from Australia, I think I mentioned. Um, and then this is a follow-up to an earlier question about the number 30, because there were 30 guards that were assigned, uh, that Evan Melek was given 30 guards to go and rescue Jeremiah and pull him out of the cistern. And I had speculated that maybe there's a, a Davidic parallel there because of David's mighty men, which were 30 in number. Um, she had asked about the 30 pieces of silver and some other things. Uh, she does ask, what is the biblical significance of the number 30? And um, I can I can give the basically the standard answer, which comes out of Bollinger. Different people have done work on biblical numerology in the past, and Bollinger is kind of recognized as being kind of the, the authority or being the, the, the most comprehensive, I think. Um, Ethelbert Bollinger, I think was his name. Um, but I I, uh, I don't totally understand a lot of what he writes and and i've never been completely sold into much of the underlying uh aspects i mean i get that there's a lot of threes in the bible there's a lot of sevens there's a lot of twelves there's a lot of forties right 40 days 40 nights these numbers do keep coming up again and again and again and, and that must have a significance attached to it but i think sometimes uh different scholars go so far into assigning numbers well it's the number of completion the number of perfection it's the number of divine glory it's the number of this the number of that and then i'm just kind of i'm I'm left uh unconvinced in a lot of cases and that's maybe that's just my diminished capacity to understand some of these things i just i just want i'm you know show me like i'm from missouri or something show me okay um so as he says here for the number 30 being three times 10 it denotes a higher degree the perfection of divine order as marking the right moment. Christ was 30 years of age at the commencement of his ministry. 
and uh, Joseph, his type, was the same age. David also, when he began to reign. <clears throat> so, anyway, and this is kind of a follow-up to the description uh, that he gives for the number three, and uh, which is very lengthy. A lot of material there on the number three. Uh, of course, Trinity is part of that. And then the number ten... Uh, one of the perfect numbers signifies the perfection of divine order and um, aspects there. Noah was in the 10th generation, the Ten Commandments. The Lord's Prayer has 10 clauses. Uh, the tithe is a, is a tenth. Um, 10 plagues. Antichrist, world power has 10 toes. Um, 10 nations. Anyway, anyone that wants to do more work on that, I, I recommend Bollinger, um, even if I don't completely understand everything he has to say. Um, I read it occasionally. Ethelbert W. Bollinger is his name, and you can do more work on that. So that's kind of a longer way of saying I don't know uh, what is the significance of the number 30. Also, if, uh, a second question uh, in the same email. Um, in Jesus' case, was it the going rate at the time for reward for capture of a felon? You know, Judas was offered thirty pieces of silver if he would if he would betray if he would betray Jesus, and so was that the going rate? And again, I have to say I don't know. I, I don't know what the going rate was for the capture of a felon. I, I'm not sure how I could research that. I did some searching. I did some hunting around uh, about different uh, uh, bounties, different rewards, and the rewards seemed to be conditional upon um, the <laughs> how desperate the person was to have somebody else captured. Um, so it, like everything, seems, seems, seems to be a supply and demand kind of thing. I do find it interesting, there is a Bible story in Judges, Judges uh, chapter 16, and of course that's centuries before Christ, but um, this is with, uh, with uh, Samson and Delilah, and Delilah is being offered a bounty for the, the capture of Samson. And the five lords of the Philistines come and they say to her, entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may uh, bind him to afflict him, then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And this is just a phenomenal wealth. I mean, 1,100 each times five, 5,500 pieces of silver is, uh, is extraordinary. And, and the New American Commentary actually addresses this. And uh, an exorbitant reward of 5,500 shekels of silver, uh, you know, that's 1,100 per, uh, the five of them, Although the value of a unit of silver fluctuated in biblical times, the significance of this figure can only be appreciated when this reward is compared with other transactions in Scripture. It is more than three times the weight of gold retained by Gideon after the victory over the Midianite kings. Uh, I mean, it's just an outrageous amount of money. With these figures, we may also compare the 400 shekels of silver paid by Abraham to purchase a burial plot for his wife, that's Genesis 24. The 50 shekels David paid Arauna for his oxen and threshing floor in 2 Samuel 24. 17 shekels that Jeremiah paid to purchase a field that he bought in Jeremiah 32. And uh, 30 shekels, which was set as a price for a slave in Exodus 21:32. And actually, that 30 pieces of silver for a slave in, uh, in Exodus, I think that is where the connection comes in with, with Judas and his reward, because it is cited in Jeremiah, it is mocked as being, you know, the price, you know, that glorious price I was, I was worthy of that's thrown to the potter's field. So, um, anyway, um, there's some scholars that, that think that the manuscripts are corrupt, but there's really no evidence of that. 
uh, and even dropping the, the, the thousand figure still makes 500 shekels an, an exorbitant price and doesn't really solve the problem because there's no, there's no manuscript evidence that the, the text is corrupt anyway. Without textual evidence to the contrary, however, the figure given should be accepted and placed alongside all the other extravagant elements of Samson's life. Everything in his life uh, happens to the superlative degree. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's certainly true. All right. So that's another long way of saying I don't know um, what the going rate was at the time for the reward and the capture of a found. Uh, another email came in from Deb Dowdy, and she has, I don't know if this is Deb's or Al's question or both, uh, but how can we tell the difference between when Satan is trying to influence our thoughts and actions or when our thoughts and feelings are just a part of being human? And that's a great question. In fact, it came up this morning in our Proverbs class. Uh, because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Out of the heart come all these things. Uh, Jesus testified to this in Matthew 15. Uh, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile him. So unlike the Pharisees who are all you know buggy about ceremonial cleanliness and, and, and cleansing their hands before eating and all that, Jesus says, you know, the real defilement is what's coming from your, your darkened heart. And there's the sins and the fornications and everything that your heart is motivating. And uh, so the thought struck me this morning as, as we taught this passage in the Proverbs class that, uh, you know, Satan doesn't have to do a lot of tempting. He doesn't have to whisper a lot of ideas. He doesn't have to, you know, put a lot of ideas in because we're, we're pretty good on our own with our own fallen natures, with our own sin natures, uh, at uh, our, own, our own temptations. And so how can you tell? I think maybe sometimes you can't, you know, and, and then, then you would ask, well, does, does, it, does it matter? I mean, regardless, if it's Satan whispering or a demon whispering or it's your own sin nature, you know, in any event, you, you want to say no, you want to resist it, you want to, you want to humble yourself before the Lord and you want to be in fellowship and walk by the Spirit. So um, ultimately, maybe if you, if you can tell or can't tell, and does it, does it matter? Uh, just don't, don't have any part of any of it. And then uh, what difference at this point does it make? All right, to quote somebody. All right. That's another I don't know. So if we have any additional questions tonight that I can answer with I don't know, we can, uh, we can certainly pass the microphone around. All right, we'll start over here on the far right. <coughs> Was Balaam the last known Gentile prophet that we can read about in Scripture, or are there others that I'm not thinking of? Um, that's an excellent question. I'm not thinking of one off the top of my head um, because the other ones seem to be pre, you know, Noah and, and Enoch uh, that were older. Um, Job was counted as a prophet, but he would have been older than Balaam. I think um, a, a Gentile prophet later than Balaam, I'm not aware of one, no. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. So, uh, Is it possible that they existed and we just have no record of their ministry? Oh, of course. Ministry? Of course. Because Israel was the covenant nation, and Israel was the uh, the uh, they were assigned to to write the scriptures. But I think I think Balaam's example, though, during Moses' lifetime, I mean, during the Exodus, that's that's pretty telling, and and maybe normative rather than uh, rather than the exception to the rule may have been the rule that that Gentile nations would have also had prophets that could have pointed them towards the Jewish people and the Jewish scriptures and and uh, and aspects there. So. Well, in, didn't the Lord speak to the Pharaoh 
in in later times and or am I in later times when they were going to war against um, and Israel tried to like stop them from going to war against Assyria wasn't Pharaoh serving God in that campaign could be could be if you have a verse I can take a look at it because I know yeah Pharaoh Necho uh, came out of Egypt in order to assist the Assyrians and help defend Assyria against Babylon and and uh, the only thing that really resulted there was the la- the death of the last good king of Judah so that's uh, kind of a sad ending on that thanks yeah. okay excellent all right we're going to cross the aisle going from the far right to the to the left Well, it's two ver- acts, uh, passages, actually. The first one is Revelation 21. It runs throughout there, but it starts at 12, describing the new Jerusalem, which is heavenly. Correct, number one? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Then over to Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Mm-hmm. Are angels going to spend eternity there? Uh, well, they are messengers, and messengers go from place to place. So I expect that there will be a lot of back and forth from heaven to earth and between the heaven and the earth. Uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, actually, it says it descends out of heaven, but nowhere does it say it actually lands on the earth. And so uh, Larkin and a lot of other folks felt that if it descends out of heaven and doesn't land on the earth, well, then it becomes an, a, a new moon, if you will. It becomes a, an orbiting satellite. And and and. There's other reasons to accept that. It's 1,500 miles north-south, 1,500 miles east-west, and 1,500 miles high, and which is a real high city, right? Uh, but if it's, uh, so is it a cube? Is it a pyramid? Different models there. Or is it a sphere, and, and does it revolve at an altitude of 1,500 miles above, above the earth? Um, you know, I guess we'll find out when it happens, but that's the description that we have in, in Scripture, 1,500 miles uh, on, on each side plus height. So it's not necessarily a residence for them. It's just a location right. that they have to be in. And where we are now, as far as our heavenly reality, we operate in the heavenly places. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and that's what we've come to. And so we operate in the heavenly places. And so, yeah, Hebrews 12 gives us a vision of, of the heavenly places. All right, and then in verse 24, Revelation twenty-one twenty-four. It's further description of that. Same, and it says, mentions the nations will walk by its light. Uh-huh. Are there nations in eternity? Yes. There are nations. For what purpose? Clearly, there are nations in the millennium, in the thousand years before sure. the, the destruction of heavens and the earth. But then after the destruction of the heavens and the earth, there are still nations. And as far as the organization of humanity is concerned, humanity is divided. Uh, you know, as far as the, the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. In fact, uh, specifically, it was, it was uh, delineated among 70 divisions. And 70 divisions were supposed to be corresponding to either um, the 70 divisions of Israel or uh, 70 divisions of the Bnei Elohim, the sons of God. Uh, that's, a, that's a big manuscript question in, in Deuteronomy. But uh, either way you take it, there's still uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, three overall lines that, that then are subdivided into 70 uh, corresponding Gentile lines, and and that continues in the in the new heavens and new earth for a thousand generations. Of the, if, if there's going to be a thousand generations, they 
they're going to populate, and, and uh, that large numbers of people require organization, and that's what the laws of divine establishment provide. So Marriage, I'm going to be, l- excuse me, mm-hmm. I'm going to be limited to the characteristics of a particular nation? I didn't hear you. you or? I, well, I'm going to be in heaven. Well, you're going to be the bride of Christ, and so the royal family of God is, is a separate category. We are neither Jew nor Gentile. We are a new creation. We are a heavenly citizenship. So the bride is, is, is a different conversation than what we're having right now. But in the new earth, what's, okay. what's spoken of there in Revelation 21, 24, the nations will walk by its light, yes. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And, uh, and, and in the new earth, there won't be any rebellion like there is in the millennium. There won't be rebellion where the kings decide that they're not going to show up this year and, and have their reign turned off for the, for the following year. Uh, Zechariah 14 speaks of that. And that's a millennial rebellion that uh, there'll be none of that in the new earth because there's no more sin, no more darkness, no more death. So this is in the onset of eternity. This is, some people view it as the onset of eternity. Uh, I prefer I prefer to think of eternity future as, as non-sequenced or non-measured. Out of time. Uh, right. But I believe that this is, uh, it is still within the bounds of time for, until that thousandth generation is complete. And then when the thousandth generation is complete, then Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. I think 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four is the omega moment of time that transitions from time into eternity. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. I think so. That was the top of my head. Yes. Then comes the end. And I love that. How many in the beginning passages do we have? But here is the end, right? Because you've got Genesis 1 in the beginning. You've got John 1, 1 in the beginning. You've got Colossians 1 in the beginning. We've got a lot of in the beginning passages throughout Scripture. But this is the end. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And it goes down to verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And this is the conclusion of time. This is the conclusion of all stewardships. This is when God the Son, who, by the way, never stops reigning. Even when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, he continues to reign beyond that. But he and the Father reign together as co-regents, even as they did in eternity past. The Father and the Son uh, have always been in that relationship one to another. So it's only with the onset of time and with the, the, uh, the entrusting of the kingdom to the angelic stewardship that, that God has been operating through vested stewards. And angels, Gentiles, Israel, church, all right? Then Christ himself exercises the stewardship personally for the thousand generations in the, in the fullness of time. Um, uh-huh. Don't get me going on this. I love this text. <laughs> All right. Back row then. That gets our next question. Well, Ellen's question in uh, Revelation uh, 21 uh, made me think about 27. Verse 27, it says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, being the city, right? Uh-huh. Um, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the thousand generations, are their names written in the Lamb's book? of Oh, yeah. So basically anyone who's on the new heavens and new earth Mm -hmm. will be able to come into the city. Correct. Okay. And that gets stated uh, repeatedly in chapter 21 and in chapter 22. 
It's like uh, God's making a repeated emphasis that, you know, once we get past Revelation 20, there's, there's never any more unbelievers ever. And uh, there's not another Adamic fall. We have sinless humanity procreating and, and birthing a thousand generations. And uh, from generation one to generation a thousand, not one human ever falls again as, as Adam fell in, uh, in the garden. It's a glorious time. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're looking forward to, by the way. We're not looking forward to the millennium. The millennium's a failure. The millennium is, is, is only a thousand years. It's like a day. Okay? And it's part of the day of the Lord. Just like the tribulation, the millennium is part of the day of the Lord. And there's wrath and there's judgment. There's the execution of murderers. There's rebellion against the throne. There's the demand that Jesus step off his throne. You know, a huge human rights crusade that marches on Jerusalem and secures the release of Satan out of the abyss. It's, it's just crazy uh, what a failure the millennium is. And that's uh, to highlight the glories of what follows after the millennium when the, there is no more sin, no more death, no more sickness. These former things have passed away. And that's what we're looking forward to because you might have heard this, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yes, sir. I'm familiar with the Zechariah 14 and the rain being cut off, but what about the execution of murderers you just mentioned? And that's in the Psalms. I want to say it's Psalm uh, 100 or 101 or 105, or it's in that section of Psalms. And whichever Psalm it is, it's the last verse of that Psalm. So uh, it's not Psalm 101. Let's see. Yeah, Psalm 101 and verse 8. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. So if you're an unbeliever and you happen to visit Jerusalem, get out of town by nightfall. (laughs) You you don't want to be in Jerusalem when the sun comes up the next morning uh, or you will be executed by Jesus Christ. That's... uh, an interesting feature of the of Jerusalem in the millennium. Yes, ma'am. Uh, okay, my voice is holding up tonight. So, <coughs> Genesis um, ten six and ten thirty one. The whole Hit chapter. Re- Genesis ten six and ten thirty one. Okay. It says everyone according to his language, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. And then 31 says according to their languages. Mm-hmm. Is that just an overview of things to come? Because they spoke the same language until Babel, correct? They did, yeah. It's slightly out of order, which bothers us uh, in our chronological sequential way of thinking. It didn't bother the, the Hebrews at all. Uh, yes, in chapter 11, we kind of back up a little bit. We get the story of Babel and we learn how the... How the um, the, na- the languages were formed uh, by the time, obviously, by the time Moses is writing this in Genesis, they're already in their languages, in their tribes, in their nations, in their lands. So it seems to be a slightly anachronistic in our way of thinking, but the Hebrews have no, no issues with that there. All right, excellent questions. All of those are outstanding. Thank you, Chris. Let's uh, get back to our second missionary journey where we left off. Um, on Sunday morning, are you able to think geographically through, kind of visualize a map in your head? Um, just by the shape of the route, you should at a glance know if it's first, second, or third missionary journey. Um, and, and the more familiar we get with it, you know, you get this crescent-looking thing where they, they cross the island of Crete, they hook up into Galatia, and they reverse back around. 
you know, I don't know what else to call that except maybe a, a lame banana or something. It looks like a, a limp banana. Um, yeah. So that's the first missionary journey, right? That's with Barnabas, with John Mark, uh, although John Mark abandons them halfway through and causing problems later. That's the first missionary journey. And it's pretty localized. It's kind of on a small scale compared to the second and the third missionary journey. Because we look at this second missionary journey, and it, it encompasses a much larger geographical region. And um, so starting off from Antioch, and then uh, following the, the route this way, through the Galatian region, where Paul was able to revisit those, those churches from the first missionary journey, and pick up Timothy along the way. Because Timothy was from this region, from Lystra and Derby, probably Derby. And so he picks up uh, Timothy here, and then closed door after closed door after closed door brings him to Troas. The detail from chapter 16 is everywhere they tried to go, the door was shut. No, can't go there, can't go there, can't go there. And then they, they reach Troas and they're like, well, what now? And that's when he has the dream, and that's when they cross over to Macedonia. And uh, Macedonia is this northern region uh, of Greece. Uh, Achaia is the lower region of Greece. Sometimes the whole thing is called Greece, but usually not, not back in that era anyway. And uh, also at Troas is when the we uh, narrative begins, when uh, it goes from they to we, and the author includes himself in, uh, in these travels. So um, this is example eight of the chain of examples we're looking at of Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions, details that we glean from Paul's writings that aren't aren't uh, spoken of in uh, in the book of Acts. And so throughout the second missionary journey, uh, we have a number of things that come up that jump out at us that aren't recorded in, in Acts, but they are details we glean from the writings of Paul. And we'll see one very quickly here uh, tonight in 1 Thessalonians uh, that will uh, deal with this. Um, this. You can think of this as the Paul and Sylvanus plus Timothy tour, if, you, if you'd like. Um, Starting in the spring of 50 A.D., I think that's a great ballpark figure, um, uh, given that we've dated the, the Council of Jerusalem at 49. I think uh, 50 is a great date. Uh, we know that when they, when they get to Corinth with, with uh, the proconsul there of a Corinth being uh, Gallio, we're, we're locked in on some good pr- uh, precision on the dating there because we've got secular records, we've got Roman records related to uh, Gallio and his, his appointments there. So... Um, the omissions include the switch between the they narrative and the we narrative. Luke omits uh, mentioning himself by name. He omits any explanation for why it switches to we all of a sudden, right? Uh, my dad used to ask, you know, what's this we stuff? You know, do you have a mouse in your pocket? What do you mean by we? You know, silly things like that. Well, it jumps out at you when, when you've been reading 15 chapters of, of, uh, of, of Acts, and then all of a sudden the third-person view becomes a first-person view. And all of a sudden we are doing a bunch of stuff until we, as time, uh, we make it to Philippi, and then they leave Philippi, and they go to Thessalonica, and so we lose the we uh, for some time. Uh, write these down because I forgot to write these down the other day and I wish I had written them down. Uh, the we portions include Acts 16, 10 through 17, uh, Acts 20, 5 through 15. So you know what that means. That means everything in between there, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, are, are not we portions, okay? But Acts 20 is uh, in verses 5 through 15. Uh, likewise, Acts 21, verses 1 through 18. 
uh, which is early in the Jerusalem experience, and then with two, two years of imprisonment before he sails to Rome, um, the we returns again in chapter 27 and finishes out the whole book. Chapter 27 and 28 are uh, we narrative from 27.1 to 28.16. And so the author of, of Luke and Acts, the author is included in the narrative. Uh, that's the, the simplest and really the only reasonable explanation for the we narrative is uh, the author himself is, uh, is involved, though he fails to, uh, to mention his name. Um, we also have the first recorded imprisonment for Paul in Philippi, and this is a, the famous story here of the Philippian jailer uh, in Acts chapter 16, and he gets saved, his household, uh, many or all of the members of his household also believe, and, uh, and they get saved, and so he baptizes everybody, and then uh, he leaves town the next day, and they will uh, depart when we see chapter 17 and verse 1, they so they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica. And again, um, here's a slightly, oh, here's this map. And, um, and so you see from Philippi across to Thessalonica. And that's uh, the region there in the top left corner that we're working with now. All right. Um, the we disappears again. Another omission by Luke. Doesn't explain why he stays behind in Philippi why uh, he might have family there or, or why he might take over the ministry there, what else might be happening. Uh, but he does stay behind in, in Philippi. And then um, the writing of First and Second Thessalonians. Now here's something. As we look through these verses here in Acts 17, uh, they arrive in Thessalonica in verse 1. Uh, according to his custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And, and that's the only indication we have of, of time that's passing by here, uh, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And uh, we looked at this on Sunday, the uproar, the mob, uh, the money that Jason had to put up, and then they leave. And so um, in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So all we have of this Thessalonian ministry is in these first 10 verses, right? There are things that are being left out and clues that we have when we read the two letters that Paul wrote to them, all right? He wrote to them 1 Thessalonians. He wrote to them 2 Thessalonians. And he did so very quickly after leaving them. He, he wrote to them from Corinth during the 18 months that he spent there in, in Corinth. And so we have to examine that as well. Then uh, Berea, of course, uh, they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And all the doctrine that, that we can pack into that verse related to inspiration and illumination and hermeneutics. By the way, you have to have a literal hermeneutic or that verse does not belong in your Bible. <laughs> all right? That uh, the only way, if, if scripture is the, the standard by which everything else is examined, then you have to have a literal hermeneutic. Otherwise, you lose the Bible as an absolute objective standard. Uh, of course, the Thessalonican Jews have a problem here. So they found out. They hunt them down. They chase them to the next city. And uh, so, verse 14, immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And this is where we start to get into some of Luke's omissions because, you know, otherwise we just, you know, we've kind of lost track of where people are 
you know, Luke, we lost Luke and Philippi because the we disappeared. And then uh, we, we were leaving Silas and Timothy in, uh, in uh, Berea. And Paul gets on a boat and he sails to Athens. And uh, with, with word that uh, Saul and Timothy should come to him as soon as possible. Okay? And so that's kind of where, where Luke leaves it. And again, we put this on a map and we kind of see, all right, Thessalonica, they all went down here to Berea, the three of them, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Because remember, we, we lost Luke up there in Philippi. And then they put Paul on a boat, and he sails down here to Athens while Silas and Timothy are there, okay, saying, come to me as soon as you can. Come to me as soon as you can. Of course, sea travels faster than foot travel and, and uh, whatever the, the occasion is there. Sometimes they would do that. They would split up, and some would get on a boat, and some would walk, and they would divide up and try to throw their enemy off the track and, and things like that. Um, now, that's where, that's where Luke leaves it. And if we didn't have First and Second Thessalonians, we wouldn't know any better. Because the next thing we see in chapter 18 is when Silas and, and Timothy finally do arrive, then uh, 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 some other things start happening here in chapter 18. So, um, let's look at chapter 18 and see some of the things that happen here. Because he spends a whole... I mean, a year and a half. He spends about 18 months here. Uh, He gets to Corinth in verse 1, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them. And we know when that decree was issued. We got secular records on that decree being issued, which I'm not going to remember. I think it was 48. I think it was 48 AD or thereabouts when that decree was issued. And uh, so he came to them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and they were working for by trade. They were tent makers. That's why when a pastor is working outside the church, we call that tent making, even if it is not making tents. Okay, Maybe he's a nurse or he's, he's a jailer, he's a police officer, whatever it is that he happens to be doing. Call that tent making based upon this pattern here. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And what's interesting, so when they came, evidently, it's it's omitted here, but we can read between the lines, they came with some funds, they came with some cash, they had some support in hand. And what we're going to learn from Philippians, actually Philippians chapter 4, is we learn that the funds they came with were from Philippi. That uh, who knows if, if did Luke head up that effort or whatever the reason was that was a flock that was very grace oriented and uh, the believers there in Philippi were sending a lot of a lot of grace gifts to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens to Corinth everywhere Paul went they were sending funds to support what Paul was doing and so now that Sylvanus and Timothy arrive with those funds in hand Paul can uh, can leave Aquila and Priscilla to their tent making business and he can now go full time. In his, uh, in his preaching and in what he's doing. All right. Um, other details here. There's a lot in this um, that we want to see. And in fact, the total time that, uh, that passes is, uh, is mentioned here in verse 11. He settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Okay, And we've got other details. We've got details about synagogue leaders, a couple of different synagogue leaders. We have details about uh, a trial at the Bema seat 
we've got details in here that Luke does record. Luke gives a lot of information about this time in Corinth. But what he doesn't tell you is, oh, during all this time, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, and then shortly thereafter he writes 2 Thessalonians. That these letters are written back to back during this stay here in Corinth. And so more of, of, uh, of uh, Luke's omissions, but Paul's admissions, okay? Let's see a couple of other things here. Um, shortly after leaving Corinth, Paul writes a letter back to them, and uh, we know it as 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 2, let's take a look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <coughs> he says, when I came to you, all right, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, when I came to you, brethren, in other words, in Acts 18.1, <laughs> okay, what we just read, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's a significant admission. That is a, that is a significant admission Paul is making here that we have not a hint of that in, in Luke's record in, in Acts 18. See? And this is specific. Okay, this is a specific admission of hardship, specific admission of, of, of conflict in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. All right. And these are the things that we want to understand, because if Luke is prone to not record these things, then that becomes a pattern. And we might expect that there will be other hardships that Luke is very prone to, to not talk about. That he's, he's very prone to omit. And it goes on to say, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So those kind of admissions, I think, are interesting. Um, also, at the end of Acts 18, uh, as he's getting ready to leave town, he, uh, he takes a vow. Acts 18, 18. And this is very much Old Testament. This is very much uh, in, in consistence with, with the law, with what a Pharisee might do. Uh, from an Old Testament standpoint, uh, definitely not a New Testament standpoint. So why is he doing this? It says, um, Acts 18, 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila. And they're going to actually relocate to Ephesus. So he drops them off here at the end of the chapter. Uh, and then it says, in Sancria, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Well, what was that about? Okay, and, and, and I suspect that the vow took place during those 18 months. And that part of that vow was not taking alcohol, not cutting his hair, not touching a dead body, not, I mean, all the expectations of a Nazarite vow from, from numbers. Okay, But then when he's getting ready now to, to leave, well, that's when he gets his hair cut. You can read some different things about it too. So maybe it was the mark, the beginning of his vow, some people argue that it was the beginning of his vow. I think it's more natural that it was the end of his vow, but whatever the case. Uh, if, we're, if, we're, if we're begging for more information, we're not going to get it, <laughs> okay? Because Luke omits it, and Paul never discusses what, what vow he took or why. So it's another omission. Luke also omits Timothy's mission to Thessalonica. Well, when did this happen? 
You know, and again, we're reading Acts 17, we're reading Acts 18, we're reading Acts 19, and nowhere do, in there do we find the uh, the commando raid that Timothy engages in, uh, his his uh, top secret infiltration back into Thessalonica again. But when you read First Thessalonians three, when you read First Thessalonians three, Paul talks about it. So let's uh, let's turn there. Something else we're learning. Paul has a tendency to write soon after um, departing a, uh, a place, right? We've already discussed the early dating of Galatians and why that's preferable to the late date of Galatians because it's soon. And he, he tells the Galatians, he says, I'm shocked that you're so quickly deserting the, the grace of, of the gospel for this thing that's not even a gospel. And it's soon after he leaves there that he's writing them an epistle. Same thing with Thessalonians. It's very shortly after he leaves the Thessalonican region, he can't go back. He can send Timothy back, but he can't go back. So he writes a couple of epistles. And who do you think carried those epistles up there to, to Thessalonica? It had to have been Timothy. All right, so he has multiple trips back up in there. So 1 Thessalonians 3, therefore when we could endure it no longer... And so he's got a description here of, of in the first two chapters of how thankful he is for them and how he wanted to come more than once. So when you look at the end of chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, didn't want to go, but we were taken away. In person, not in spirit, because we still love you and we pray for you every day. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We, we, this is Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy writing this epistle. We wanted to come with you to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. I mean, this flock was just eating up the word of God for three weeks in a row. And then they were just devouring it. They were positive. They were hungry. And Paul couldn't go back. Silas couldn't go back. But Timothy could. And that's what we have a clue here in chapter 3 then. So therefore, when we, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. Ah, this happened. They made this decision while Paul was alone at Athens. But we chose to send Timothy back. All right, and so as we draw this out then, and, and so uh, they all came down to here, and then Paul by himself came down to here. We had Sylvanus and Timothy here, and then somebody had the bright idea, said, you know what? We can send Timothy back into town. He's just a 10-year-old. He's just 12 or whatever. He's just a kid, and he's not on the, the arrest warrant, and, and that's not going to ruin Jason's, uh, the cash that Jason put up or anything. Let's send Timothy back there and let him, let him remind them of all the teaching. So we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And again, it shows the positive volition and the hunger that those Thessalonians had. Because you know other flocks were kind of dismissive of Timothy because he was too young or he was timid or whatever else. Corinth, uh, you know, Corinth was dangerous for Titus to go into. Think nothing of Timothy. Man, they'd have eaten Timothy alive if uh, he'd have sent Timothy to, he thought about it a couple times, but never did send Timothy to Corinth. He sent Titus instead and even worried about that. 
All right. So we sent Timothy so that no one to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Now, he's not a fully trained pastor teacher yet. He's not studying his own doctrine. He's not feeding. All he's doing in this training ministry is reminding them of what Paul taught in the three weeks that they were there. You know, something like this happened when Bob was 16. We were in the Philippines and we had taught the same material in like four different villages. And then we get to this one place and, and Pastor Cliff got sick. And Pastor Cliff was, was puking. It was just nasty. Anyway, so he, he went to this other room and he's laying down. And, and so we had to carry on this Bible conference. And thankfully, because Bob had heard it repeatedly over and over and over again, he said, well, I'll just teach it. And sure enough, he taught it. He taught all of Pastor Cliff's stuff in that, in that next conference we went to because he'd heard it so many times. All right? And uh, anyway, it worked out. So here's what Timothy's doing. And uh, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, these afflictions. Well, wait a minute, what afflictions? What kind of afflictions were there in Berea? What kind of afflictions were there in, in Athens? What was it that caused Paul to say, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling? Timothy was able to tell him about it. Luke omitted it, but Timothy was able to tell him about it. You yourselves know that we've been destined for this. Indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. And for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So not only did Timothy have to go and, and reinforce all that doctrine, but he also had to evaluate their spiritual health. That requires some frame of reference, doesn't it? That requires some maturity on Timothy's part. So now that Timothy has come to us from you, and yeah, he came with Silas, and he, uh, they brought some money from Philippi. How did that get there? Okay. Um, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in our distress, in our affliction, what were those? Luke didn't write about them, but they were happening. We were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, since you, or if you, first class, since you stand firm in the Lord. All right, so these things, these things are, are amazing. And then that we realize Luke uh, omitted a lot that Paul is now admitting to. These are significant. Paul's admissions, Luke's omissions, as it relates to the sufferings the persecutions, the afflictions, maybe some jailings, because he was jailed multiple times, we're told. But Luke didn't tell us anything after the, that one night in, uh, in Philippi. So, um, Luke also omits Timothy's mission to Thessalonica. As far as we know, this is his first training assignment. This is, he's flying solo. He's, he's on this mission. See, And that, to me, is, uh, is an extraordinary thing. All right, so could there have been a, uh, an imprisonment here? We talk about an imprisonment because he was imprisoned multiple times. Might there have been a detaining incident in, in uh, I mean, in Thessalonica, they, they were hiding while, while uh, a house-to-house search was going on and Jason was brought in. Uh, and then in Berea, they were hunted down again in Berea. And then in Athens, there, there was more conflict at Athens. Could there have been a night in jail, a couple nights in jail, a week in jail? Several weeks. All right. 
But uh, the writing also of First uh, and Second Thessalonians, I think, is uh, significant as well. Luke doesn't mention it. Nowhere in the in the book of Acts does Luke pinpoint for us when Paul wrote all these letters. And since he omits all that, and and also Paul fails to correlate his writings with with the book of Acts, uh, that's why we do these exercises the way that we do. All right, that's our second missionary journey. Now we get to move on to the third missionary journey and other details. And this is really the key because however we understand Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, those prison epistles, I think it comes down to how we understand some of these details in the third missionary journey and details that Paul omits or that Luke omits, all right? But Paul admits in various letters. And uh, the prison epistles themselves that admit to a, a lot of things. And then the pastoral epistles then beyond that. So um, this is going to be important for us. Third missionary journey, chapters uh, 19 and 20, basically. The last part of chapter 18 here that kind of kicks it off. And then uh, if you just want to use round chapter divisions, chapter 19 and 20 is the third missionary journey. And uh, it's, it's stunning for us because there's a lot of details left out of chapter 19, but Paul talks about it in hindsight in chapter 20. And, and Luke records Paul's speech in chapter 20 when Paul is admitting details and things that, that Luke didn't bother writing about in chapter 19. So Luke himself betrays his own omissions in recording Paul's speech in, uh, in chapter 20. On the third missionary journey, Paul and Timothy are going to relocate their headquarters from Antioch to Ephesus. And uh, that's why this diagram is going to be uh, slightly different um, for a number of reasons, right? The, uh, some people get buggy about this and say, well, Paul broke his pattern. He didn't start in, in Antioch and end in Antioch. Well, I don't believe the, the, the third missionary journey started in Antioch. I think the Antioch to Ephesus was a relocation. And that Ephesus was the, was the headquarters. And this diagram is rather limited because there were several other journeys within the three years that he lived in Ephesus. There was a sorrowful visit to Corinth. There was uh, another team that was sent out to Colossae that founded a church in Colossae. In fact, Paul was so busy in Ephesus, he was not on that team that went to Colossae that started the church in Colossae. When he writes the Colossians, he's writing to a church he'd never been to. But he knew, he knew those people. They had come to him. And some of the men he trained had gone to them. We also see a lot of the same towns that we're familiar with because of Revelation 2 and 3. Right? We have Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Laodicea. We've got the, 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 the seven churches of Asia that we know about because of Revelation 2 and 3. A lot of them come up here in this, uh, in this third missionary journey. And it happens while his headquarters... Is no longer Antioch. His headquarters is now Ephesus. He has, he has moved the missionary headquarters from Antioch to Ephesus. And I think that's, uh, that's a noteworthy trend. So we'll come back to this. Uh, um, he does return to Ephesus. And you might say, well, that's the end of the missionary journey. So when he returns to Ephesus. But he's in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem that he won't go to Ephesus and deliver his missionary report. Instead, he brings all the elders to him. 
He brings all the elders to him at Miletus, delivers his missionary port, and then gets on a boat for Jerusalem. And that's how the third missionary journey comes to an end. Because from Jerusalem, he's under arrest, and he has to go to Rome in his appeal to Caesar. So we'll talk about all these things. Um, <clears throat> the spring of 53 AD is a good date. Uh, three years later is going to bring you to 56 or 57, depending uh, on how we sequence some of the other events. Uh, this leads us into uh, his departure from Ephesus, uh, the writing of First uh, and Second Corinthians, the writing of Romans, um, and I believe the writing of the prison epistles, all within this uh, all within this time frame. But we have to do the work to to prove this, because um, otherwise the church tradition de- delays the prison epistles until Rome, until he's in Rome, until Acts twenty eight, and then they have the writing of the prison epistles after that. But the writing of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans, the three longest books he writes, the three deepest books, well, deep into Ephesus, uh, the deepest books he writes until Ephesians, all right? Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, is all in this third missionary journey. It's all with his headquarters in Ephesus. And so many other details we have to understand. So Ephesus becomes a great missionary logistical base and ministry training center. And so uh, we have uh, chapters 19 and 20 here of, uh, of, the books of a- uh, the book of Acts. Bring this back up again. Mars Hill has returned to Antioch. All right, third missionary journey. And a very similar map to the other map. Again, I think it's this is not to be counted as the third missionary journey. I think this is simply the relocation of the headquarters from Antioch to uh, to uh, Ephesus. And then really, this diagram needs to be fixed. Okay, We need to add extra arrows because there's a painful visit to Corinth where he, he travels this way and comes back to Ephesus. There's uh, more ministry to Laodicea. There's other ministry that he speaks of in Troas. Uh, he leaves somebody sick at Miletus. There's, there's a number of other journeys and travels that are hinted at in Paul's uh, letters that Luke does not describe. Okay, And until we did all the work we've done the last two weeks to show you that this is kind of normal for Luke, that really bothered a lot of people. I don't think it should be bothering anybody. And I don't think it should be a, 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 a barrier at all to any um, proposed imprisonments, such as an Ephesian imprisonment as the uh, authorship and source of, uh, of these prison epistles. So we'll talk about these, uh, these details here as well. It's also a time of great writing. Um, second, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, all in this era. The diagram here will mention those. So that's where he mentions 1 Corinthians. That's where he mentions 2 Corinthians. That's where he mentions Romans. I think we also need to put Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon in the same window, in the same three-year period. Okay, And uh, we'll talk about that. Let's look at some of these verses here in Acts 18, kind of the end of the chapter. Um, 
So where do we? Got his hair cut, keeping a vow. All right. They sail from Sancria. And, and Sancria, you, you remember, is just um, adjacent to Corinth. It's not even on this map. But uh, Sancria is the eastern port of Corinth. They had a different western port and Corinth in between. That's uh, where they did all their shipping through that, that narrow isthmus there. All right. So, um, interestingly enough, uh, gets his haircut, leaves St. Cree in verse 18. Then verse 19, they came to Ephesus. Finally. Remember, he wasn't allowed to go into Asia on the second missionary journey. The Holy Spirit forbade him to go into Asia. But now he's finally arriving at Ephesus. And he left them there. That is Aquila and Priscilla. That's where they're relocating to, and he's going to leave them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews uh, by himself. Aquila and Priscilla are, you know, setting up their household, their tent business, and whatever else they're doing. Entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And they asked him to stay for a longer time. Wow, mind blown, right? Because this is not normal for Paul. Normally, he, he starts preaching to Jews, they get mad at him. And he then turns to the Gentiles. Here, he's preaching to Jews, and they're like, yeah, tell us more. And he doesn't. He uh, says, well, I'll try to get back if I can. Taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again, if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. You're like, really? Paul, what's, what's up? Okay, and Luke doesn't tell us. This is a glaring omission, and and and, and there there has to be something going on, but Luke does not tell us what it is. Taking leave of them and saying, "I will return to you again if God wills," he set sail from Ephesus. <coughs> he lands at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church. Went down to Antioch, and. Uh, this now wraps up the, the second missionary journey. He's, he's reporting back to the, to the church that sent him off. And then uh, now he's going to relocate. So having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and uh, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And then he himself will eventually come to Ephesus. In the meantime, though, Luke does record this. Uh, Imagine what might have been the case if uh, Paul had come face to face with Apollos here. Hard to imagine, because Apollos was a little bit mixed up. He was a good Bible teacher, but he had some misunderstandings. And, uh, goodness. Um, This is where Priscilla and Aquila are going to be able to explain things more accurately. Um, He was mighty in the scriptures, we're told, in verse 24. Uh, And he was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, however, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. He didn't have all the information, and so he was limited in what he was able to do. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And you think about that. The grace that they had, the blessing that they had, possibly uh, an exhortation ministry or some kind of a role there for Aquila and his wife, and, and they took him aside. 
Okay, this is not a woman teaching or having authority over a man here. This is a husband and wife team, and together they're able to explain things. And uh, it's also not a public confrontation. Okay? And what's really interesting, I've got to close here, I'm out of time. But it's interesting, see, because later on, Corinth is going to become very schismatic. And one-fourth of the church is going to follow this Apollos character. And one-fourth of the church is going to follow Paul. Okay? And then one-fourth is going to follow Cephas and, or Peter, and one-fourth is going to follow Jesus, supposedly. But they were just as schismatic as the other three groups, so I don't give them any credit. Okay? Uh, some people want to be positive for the Jesus crowd, but I think they were just as divisive as the other three crowds. And, and, and to me, it's, 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 I think the Holy Spirit kept, got Paul out of town fast enough where he couldn't have a confrontation with Apollos. And, and left it for Priscilla and Aquila. Okay? I mean, that, that Paul Barnabas thing did not end well. I think Paul was struggling. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit did not let Paul have another Paul Barnabas blow up with Apollos. Got Paul out of there quick enough so that it was Priscilla and Aquila that could be gentle and gracious and whatever else to get Apollos uh, accurately worked out and get those things done. Anyway, my suspicion, can't prove it because Luke omitted so many details. (laughs) All right. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they weren't necessary for the composition of the book of Acts. So they weren't necessary don't edify, but we, we ponder nonetheless. All right. Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll come back to this. Possibly Sunday morning, possibly Wednesday. Uh, we have a missionary coming in on Sunday, and I've not yet made up my mind uh, if I'm going to sacrifice this study and give him first hour, or if I'm going to sacrifice uh, uh, Jeremiah and give him second hour. Um, I found out I do have a week to play with to still wrap up Jeremiah before the uh, trip to Kiev. So if I give, uh, Mario Garcia will be the missionary that will be here Sunday morning. And uh, I, I like giving him second hour just because there's more people. There's more people here to hear his report and be encouraged and, and supportive of, of that ministry. So anyway, I will decide between now and then and uh, let Mario know <laughs> which hour he's speaking. I don't think he cares. And, uh, and let uh, Carol know so we get the bulletins printed appropriately and, uh, and decide what we're doing there. So as the Lord wills. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for sustaining my voice for the whole hour. Father, I feel great. Thank you for all the prayers of the saints. Thank you for um, drugs and the antihistamines and and uh, this new spray thing on my tongue. Um, I'll, I'll try anything, Father, and, and tonight's been good, so I thank you for that. And uh, bless each of us as we continue to study, uh, not only in the academic understanding but, Father, the full spiritual impact of how these things affect us today and what we glean from each of these details, Father. Um, we want to be, be your servants, and this truth is what's equipping us to do that. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.